Last night I was sitting in my loft and I listened to George Beverly Shea sing traditional hymns and I started crying. I thought, man, that was just, just music so good for the soul. Did you know that? Yeah. And your soul needs music. It just lifts you up. And, and while preaching challenges the will and stirs the emotions, sometimes music's the best to stir the emotions. And uh, today we're going to feed the intellect a little bit as we look at Isaiah chapter 13. And you bear with me as we teach, preach today. Uh, some of it's maybe a little bit deep, but I believe you'll be able to figure it out and apply it to your lives. I was reading about some new discovery of brain transplants. And they had uh, some brains available, and people could come in and buy a brain for a transplant. Now, you know this is a joke, obviously. And uh, they had three brains available, and one was the brain of a chemist. And the guy said, well, how much for that one? He said, $50,000. And then they had another brain. It was a brain of an astronaut, and it was $100,000. And then they had a third brain. It was from a UT graduate. It was $5 million. Someone said, why? I said, because it had never been used. <laughs> That's bad. So Tennessee fans, they're mad at me right now. I should use Georgia or Alabama, right? <laughs> Isaiah chapter 13. We're going to read these first six verses, or five and a half verses. When you find that, Isaiah chapter 13, stand with me. Isaiah 13, verse 1 says, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, did see. Lift you up a banner upon the high mountain. Exalt the voice unto them. Shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of the multitude in the mountain like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdom of nations, gathered together, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord, and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. God bless us. We thank you for your word. Help us to understand your message today. Help us to apply it to our lives. Lord, I need you very much to make this real in the lives of our people. Lord, I don't know the hearts today, but you do. I don't know the needs spiritually, but you do. And I pray you'll meet the need through your word. We know your word doesn't return void. And I pray today that I'll be effective in communicating this passage. Bless now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Isaiah is a 26-foot-long scroll. That's how they wrote. They wrote on scrolls and animal skins, and they would roll them out and write on them and sew them together, and they'd have long passages. Isaiah is the longest scroll in the Bible. Psalms, because Psalms is comprised of 150 different psalms, it's a bunch of scrolls. But Isaiah is one long scroll. Now you have in your hands what we call codex. When we change from scrolls to page turning, we call that codex. And we've added chapter divisions and so forth. It's interesting when we added the chapter divisions. Man did that. It wasn't part of the inspiration process. But when we added chapter divisions, they configured Isaiah and had the first 39 chapters to speak of judgment. And then chapters 40 to 66 to speak of mercy and grace, 66 chapters. 
like 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. So that's why they did that. But Isaiah was a book that was uh, uh, written, inspired by God. God gave him here a vision, and he wrote down what he had seen. Isaiah here sees Babylon being crushed. He's talking about that, Babylon being crushed. He ministered as a person, Isaiah ministered at the same time as Hosea and Amos and Micah. And he is quoted over 300 times by New Testament writers, and even Jesus refers to Isaiah. And so what a great prophet he is. And we pick up here in verse 1, and we see, first of all, the banner of the nobles, the burden or oracle of Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, did see. So he sees this vision, and he calls it a burden. And this is used of the weight of a donkey in, in the Bible in Exodus 23, and then Second Kings uses this word in regards to a camel carrying a weight. And here he sees this burden, the burden of Babylon. What's going to happen to Babylon? He sees this. And that's what he writes about, how Babylon is going to be defeated. Now, Babylon today is what we know as Iraq. And that's what it was back then. It wasn't called Iraq, but the same region, the same territory. And he sees the destruction of this city. These people were anti-God. Now, Babylon wasn't the first world power, but we know it was the first place where we find evil spoken of in the Bible as far as outside of the Garden of Eden. Remember, Chapter 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. So God chooses this as the first city to be judged amongst many that will be judged. Why Babylon? Well, we see it way back in Genesis 11. We also see Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. The future, a judgment of Babylon. So he's, God is angry and Babylon's the center of all hatred towards God and rebellion and confusion, and, and that's what this place was all about. So Isaiah says to lift up a banner. That's equivalent to our flag. Lift up a banner. You think of uh, Iwo Jima and how they put that flag up when they had conquered that. And I think of how great that picture is of those men pushing the flag up. I spent seven years in Okinawa, which was a more bloody battle than Iwo Jima even. And I got to go in caves, and one time we found a live grenade. It hadn't been detonated, obviously, or it wouldn't be together. And Chuck, my friend, carried it out. I said, man, that thing could still explode. <laughs> Get it away from me. He's just showing it to me. I cleared out of there quick. But, and I was able to go in the underground Japanese naval facility and see where those uh, generals planted the war and walk all through there. And, and I was able to go to the cliff where the Okinawans jumped to their death fearing the Americans because they were lied to by the mainland Japanese who said that we would rape their women and do all these things to them. So I, I was able to go there. But you think of raising the flag on Iwo Jima. Here Isaiah says, raise the banner on the side of the mountain, uh, on the high mountain. And most scholars think that was probably the Temple Mount or Mount Zion, that uh, they're raising the flag on symbolically. They're thinking about raising the flag. Why? Because Babylon, who had captured them in 586, would now be destroyed. So he says the nobles, and we know the leaders. That's word translated princes in, some, in other parts of your Bible. But here we find, he says, that lift the banner and, and let the word get to the leaders. And he says in verse 3, I have commanded, now notice this, my sanctified ones. I have called my mighty ones for mine anger. God's very angry. So he says, I've called, I've 
called my sanctified ones. And that word needs to be set apart. What's he talking about? Well, God is calling armies in. And he calls them sanctified. Now, the Persians, who would be led by Cyrus, weren't what we would call believers. They were anti-God, hateful, horrible people. They were the Iranians of today. They were called the Persians. And Cyrus would lead the Persian army in, and God calls them sanctified. Now, why is that? And why does God call the Medes who would accompany the Persians and they would divide Babylon into two kingdoms? Remember the handwriting on the wall. And they would come in behind the Persians and, and the two of them would wipe Babylon out, destroy them because God's angry. And God calls those nations sanctified. Why? Because they're doing the work of God. But God said the same thing about Babylon when they destroyed Israel. You see, God hates sin. And Israel was in a place in their history where they were worshiping idols and God had warned them and warned them and warned them. And in 722, the Assyrians came in and defeated Israel. And 137 years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, Judah and Benjamin comprised the southern kingdom, were defeated by Babylon. But even though God used Babylon to destroy and teach Israel a lesson, God still punished them for treating God's people bad. Sometimes God will use sinful people to get your attention. Sometimes he'll chasten you by means of a sinful person. Yet he'll still deal with them for treating you bad. Isn't that interesting? To me, it's fascinating how God works. Look at Acts chapter 17. And you'll want to mark this in your Bible. God gave you pens and he gave you scripture on paper so that we can mark these uh, verses in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Something you'll want to mark. It, it, I'm amazed this week I looked up how many different nations ruled the world and going way back before the Assyrians and all the different nations. And hundreds of different nations have ruled this world. Most recently in our history, you'd say England was a world power, probably in the 20s and 30s. You know, England, England co controlled India and a lot of Africa and the Holy Land. And, and, and of course, since then, we haven't had a dominant single world power. Right now, we have Russia and China and America, and I think we're kind of dwindling down a little bit. Uh, but we're not mentioned in history, in, in in pro prophetically, we're not mentioned because we're not going to stop anybody from harming Israel. Well, God's going to have to do that. We'll talk about that later. But we know as we study nations, they rise and they fall. But look at Acts 17, 26. Mark this in your Bible, the last part of the verse. And he hath made of one blood all nations. Did you know all nations came from, from Adam? Did you know at the, at the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we had three lines of people? You know, Shem means uh, red one. It, it has to do with all the people from the, from the Arabs, and eventually all the peoples intermarry and all these new nations are formed and you have the Native Americans and the Hispanic people all came from that line. And, and then we know Japheth means fair one. And, you know, all the uh, European people and Russian people came from that and you know that. And of course, we know uh, uh, Ham means dark and we know the Africans and the dark peoples of the world. But they all came from one blood. If you don't like people because they're different than you, that's your problem. God made us all of one blood, it says. That wasn't the point of my message. Of men to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined, and this is what you want to mark, the times before appointed and the bounds, that's our word horizon, where we get our word horizon from that, the bounds of their habitation. God knows every nation that will rise and fall. 
He knows how much area they will control. He knows how long they will last. God's in control of the whole world. Did you know that? He knows when we will be done as a nation and how it will happen. He knows what's causing us to go down, and he'll be involved in all of that. Now, I hate that because I'm a proud American. I still love the flag. I still love mom and apple pie, too. That's obvious, isn't it? But, but God knows all about each nation. He knows how much they'll control, how long they'll be in control. He knew in 539 that the, Merds and the Medes and the Persians, the Medes today we'd call the Kurds, Kurdish people, today dwell in upper Iraq and southern part of Turkey. He knew in 539 they would go on and defeat Babylon. And he gives Isaiah this vision of that happening. And back to our text. We, we know it says here in verse 4, God's angry versus the noise of the multitude talks about these nations coming in. Uh, and the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. So God's behind all of this. They come from a far country, verse 5. Drop down to verse 17. Behold, I will up the Medes against them. So it's the Persians, then it's the Medes that are going to come in and defeat Babylon. Verse 5, he talks about his indignation. His indignation. This means intense anger. God's very angry. Do you know God still hates sin? Did you know that? Do you know that God is going to judge all the nations? That's right. The Bible says it's going to be a judgment of the nations. And do you know God will also judge individuals at the great white throne, white throne for their sin? And if they haven't been saved from their sin, they want to stand there if they are saved. But if they're not saved, they're going to stand there and be judged. And the Bible said hell will be cast in the eternal lake of fire. Hell is just a temporary place. It'll be emptied at the great white throne and cast into the eternal lake of fire. But let me tell you this. Let's get more personal. Did you know God hates sin in your life? And he gets angry when you sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It says, God forbid. You know what God does? First, he speaks to you. That Holy Spirit says, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. He says, Andrew, you shouldn't yell at Mike like that. I won't pick on her. He's never said she yells at him. I just presume all the wives here once in a while get agitated at their husband, right? I was thinking last week, it was Valentine's Day, and I didn't preach a sweetheart message. And I heard some other churches do that, and I thought, I preached on Ehud killing Eglon with a knife 18 inches long. That wasn't very romantic. But, but we know that we do get irritated. We, we, I heard about it. You heard about the guy who... His phone rang at 3 o'clock in the morning, and he answered the phone. Someone said, is Jim there? And he said, Jim, no one by the name Jim lives here. He was agitated. He hung up the phone. About an hour later, the guy called back again. Is Jim there? Now he's really frustrated. Jim's not here. You have the wrong number. Hung up. About an hour later, the guy called back and said, hey, this is Jim. Have any messages? That's indignation. But we know that we all struggle with sin. It may be getting mad at our kids or our husband or our wife or, or, or mad at the dog, you know. Uh, you know, I've had dogs that I wanted to kill, but my kids always loved them, so I was nice to them. But, I mean, a dog will chew a new pair of shoes. I mean, leather shoes. They love leather. So get a new leather sofa and then get a puppy. 
and you'll be tested. But really, seriously, God hates our sin. Whether it's getting angry at a dog, or whether it's eating too much, you know, whether it's not being a good employee, God hates it. And he will speak to our conscience. Second of all, he'll turn us over his knee and spank us. I mean, he'll chasten us. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible even says for the believer, there's even sin unto death. Remember in Corinthians, he said, some are dead because of their sin. So we know God will not tolerate our continual sin. So wake up. God is a God that still hates sin. God has never changed. I'm thankful for the cross and the age of grace, but God still hates sin. And our sin has to be taken care of. And he's going to judge the nations, and we have to be more personal and say he's going to judge us. Now look at verse 6. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now the day of the Lord is not a good day. We think of the day of the Lord, we want to think about the rapture, and that's a great day. But that's not what the day of the Lord is talking about. We think of the day of the Lord, we think, well, well I can't wait till he sets up his kingdom. That's awesome. I can't wait till he calls down the new earth, makes the new earth and calls down the new heaven. But the day of the Lord in the Bible is always talking about God's judgment. And here's the day of the Lord. It shall come as a what? As a destruction. I mean, God's angry and he's going to deal with sin. So in 539, the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus and Darius, would bring these armies in and they'd wipe Babylon out. One Greek historian called it utter desolation. It was just total destruction. And we find that years later, hundreds of years later, Alexander the Great came in and God used him as a sanctified one to punish the Medes and the Persians and wipe them out. Then Rome came. God's in control. And even though he uses someone like this originally to punish Israel, he still will deal with nations for their sin. And during war, it becomes cruel, and they'll answer for their cruelty. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. What does it say? The rapture, shouting and praising? No. The day of the Lord in the Bible, remember, is always difficult. He cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce angle, anger to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Eighteen times in the Old Testament you find the word sinners, always used in the plural. Did you know that we are not sinners? While I'll say to you, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, God doesn't see my sin anymore. He classifies me as a saint. And you'd say, a saint you ain't, Brother Dan. You're right in that regard. But from God's perspective, he sees me as complete washed, whitewashed from the blood. He sees my perfection, my complete, my completedness. He doesn't see my sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? And so we're never called sinners after we're saved. You say, but I sin, but you're not a sinner. You're a saint who's sinning. The word sinners applies to lost people. They're still classified as sinners. You see, a lost person lies because he's a liar. He only has one nature, and that's a sinful nature. A Christian lies because he's backslidden or not obedient to God that day, but he's still a follower of God. He's still a child of God. Even though sometimes God's embarrassed by my behavior, he still has to claim me. 
I mean, years ago I was teaching seminary and I get a call from the high school office. You have to come over here. Uh, we need to talk to you about your son. And so I go over and I go into the office and my son had done some what he thought were funny things, but they weren't very funny. He got a bottle of spray, which made a room smell like an outhouse, but he emptied it on the third floor and they had to close the whole third floor. Now I get this call that I got to go over and deal with this situation. I don't know what it is, but I'm sitting in the office and I'm in between embarrassed and in between murder somewhere in there. Um, I, I, I'm a Bible professor, the distinguished Dan Mao, and my son sprays the spray and they're all gagging. They close the whole floor down for the day. And my son, he thought it was funny at the time, but now he knew it was no longer funny. But honestly, at that point, I wanted to say, well, this is not my son. He has the same last name, but I really don't know the kid. <laughs> and maybe give him my wife's cell number. He belongs to this lady. And sometimes we make God feel like that. We embarrass God. But he still claims us. I'm still his child. Isn't that something? Thank you, Lord, for, for loving me enough to hang on to me. Well, back to verse 11, he talks about their crooked behavior, the wicked. He uses these big words, the wicked, and iniquity means crooked, and wicked has to do with being a tyrant. And uh, he, he talks about how he's going to purge the elect, but he's going to deal with all these people in these next several verses. Verse 12 talks about a high death toll. He said, I'll make man more precious than fine gold. In other words, he's going to kill most of them. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. There's another time when God's angry like this. Matthew chapter 24. And verse 22. In Matthew chapter 24, it's talking about the great tribulation period when God's angry and he pours his wrath out. But in verse 22, he says, And except these days should be shortened, there shall be no flesh, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, those shall... The, the days should be short. So the saved are going to be taken care of, but it's going to be a terrible time. It's going to be darkness, and God's going to deal. With, he's going to kill everybody. What's going, how's this happen? What, what's going on, brother? Well, the Bible teaches that all the nations in the world are going to come after Israel to destroy them. That's right. And they're all going to be wiped out, not because of America. One man is going to stand against all the armies of the world. The armies from the east, the big bear to the north. We're not sure who that is, but probably Russia. There's two big countries north of Israel, Turkey and Russia, only two. But the Bible talks about all these. But guess what? God's going to protect Israel. Jesus alone will stand and defeat them by the word of his mouth. Then in the end of the tribulation, or end of the millennium, excuse me, all the nations of the world, Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years and released, and guess what? Then again, Satan's going to rally all the nations of the world, come against Israel and stop this millennial kingdom, take this king off the throne. We're sick of this ruler Jesus, and guess what? That's when it all ends. He judges all the nations defeats them all, and then comes the new heaven and new earth. But I'm so glad he's in control today, aren't you? I'm glad that we don't have to worry about China. We'll be raptured. I don't worry about global warming. A lot of malarkey there. 
I mean, this is not a political statement, but the Bible says there will be global warming in the tribulation period, but we're gone. What do we care about that? I don't want to pollute, don't get me wrong, but the fact of the matter is China and India are committing 85% of the pollution that's killing our air, and we have to take the American worker and say we can't do this and that anymore to save the air. And so I don't worry about global warming. When it comes, we'll be gone. It will come. The Bible says the sun will scorch men. Be a little more than warm. It'll be a scorcher then, you know? And so we, we don't worry about all these things. We trust God's in control of the nations. And then we find here, not only do we find the banner of the nobles in the day of the Lord, but then in verse 19, we find the glory of the kingdoms. Verse 19, back in our text, says here, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms. Now think about that. He says the beauty of the Chaldeans' excellency. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians' religious leaders, and they made the city beautiful. When you think about the city of Babylon, uh, Kroll, a scholar, says that the city was surrounded by double walls, and one wall was 85 feet thick and 11 miles long. And he talked about every 25 feet they had a tower, a lookout tower, which were 65 feet long tall, and the guards could stay there. They had a ziggurat, a, a, a steps going up 288 feet to the tower, of, up the Tower of Babylon, not the tower back in Genesis 11, but they built another one. And they had these hanging gardens, which were one of the ancient wonders of the world, and they had these gates, Adam, named after Babylonian gods, and this city was considered the glory of the world. The most beautiful place you could ever go would be Babylon. Beautiful place. The International Bible Encyclopedia says it was 196 square miles, 14-mile-long walls all the way around it. And people would go there and for safety and security, and they'd shut the gates, and they'd be safe inside. It was a, it was a, you know, a, 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 a mighty fortress, we'd say. I love that song. But here, these walls, according to the Bible Encyclopedia, were... 300 feet high in some cases and 80 feet thick and they had roads on top where the chariots could ride and they had shops and people lived up there. A fascinating city. The Greek historian Herodias gives us those dimensions and they're recorded in the Bible encyclopedia. But anyway, they had a false god named Marduk and they just revered Marduk and, and they made a, uh, Herodias said it was a solid gold statue of him weighing 52,000 pounds. And some scholars say it must have just been gold covered. But they also had stone images of him and, and wooden images of him. And one time the Hittites defeated them and took, took the, the god with them. And the Assyrians also took the god with them one time. And eventually Alexander the Great, they say, took it away. And no one knows where it is now. But guess what? That god doesn't even exist today. Isn't that interesting? Do you know in a few hundred years, Allah won't even exist? You know why? Because all false gods are just part of Satan's deception. There's only one true God, the eternal God, and that's Jesus, Lord of lords and King of kings. He's the only true and righteous God. All these other gods are dead, and they don't even look good. You know, they just, you just look at these gods, they all they make them ugly. I don't know why they make these gods so ugly, but people believe in these gods. But then these gods sort of disappear. No one worships Marduk today or Baal or Ashtoreth or any of these other gods, Zeus or any of them. Why? Because they never existed to begin with. Some of them were named after people who were great warriors and athletes. 
But the fact of the matter is, there's only one eternal God. Let us make man in our image. The Trinity seen way back in Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Trinity's always existed. But here, they have this Marduk. Babylon, when you think of Babylon, you think, what evil people, but a lot of good came from Babylon. You think of accounting, came from Babylon. Astronomy, the zodiac, the 12 divisions of stars. Now, I'm a Libra, and you know what that means? Absolutely nothing. Did you know that's all man-made jargon? The original zodiac, the 12 divisions of stars, did exist. We know the wise men followed one of those stars to know where Jesus was born. The Bible says that they were given to us as signs, but there's not been any signs since Jesus was born. But the Bible says in the tribulations time, there's going to be great signs again. And people say, he must be coming back. Look what's going on. And the people who study space will be pretty excited, thinking some, something great's happening. Well, when it's Jesus, they won't be so excited. But he's going to come back. And, and, and there's going to be some signs showing that. But right now, we're, while we're thankful for the past zodiac and the signs thereof, today all that stuff in the newspaper about your horoscopes, all man-made stuff. Everyone can find something in their Libra that for October that applies to me. I can find things, but then I find things don't represent me at all, so I know it's all baloney and I know how it came about, and it is, trust me. But anyway, we know that one day the signs are going to say he's coming and he's going to come back to the earth. These people were great, intelligent people. They gave us the 365-day year. And, of course, we have an extra day once in a while to make up for the time because it's not quite 365 days, and they came very close in their calculation. These were intelligent, powerful people, wealthy and everything, but they were arrogant. They were proud. And because of that, God had to bring them down. Look at verse 19, talks about this beautiful city. About how, how Babylon, the beauty of the, the excellency, shall be as when God, notice how it's going to end up overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And that happened. And look at verse 20, it shall never be inhabited. Jeremiah says not one stone will be on, on top of another. Yet today we've given a lot of money to Babylon or to Iraq and they've rebuilt that some and there are people that live there. Then is the Bible wrong here? No. Because remember, the, the defeat in 539 was only partial fulfillment of God's prophecy against Babylon. We said earlier that this would ultimately be fulfilled when? Genesis, not Genesis, Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon will be destroyed. There's going to be a spiritual Babylon and a physical Babylon, economical or uh, financial center of the world. Some believe the new Babylon will actually reside in Europe, and that's possible, we don't know. But the ultimate destruction of the system of Satan will be desolation. The enemy and everything he represents and all the peoples he leads will be wiped flat, wiped clean. Who's going to do it? Verse, chapter 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will choose Israel and set them in their own land. That happened in 1948. And strangers shall be joined with them. That holy land's full of strangers. The land's Israel, but there are others there. But look at verse 6. He who smote the people in wrath 
with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindered. Let me tell you something. The Lord himself is going to deal the final blow to the enemy of God, Babylon. And all of wickedness will end that, end that, end that day. And in Genesis, I keep saying Genesis, Revelation 17 and 18, you can read that when you get home. The Lord is going to take care of it. The Lord's in control of all the nations and all the world. And he's also in control of smaller things like you. And he's in control of me. Did you know that? He's in control of your circumstances. He's in control of your situation. You say, Brother Dan, you talk about God being in control a lot. That's because the Bible talks about it a lot. And we don't get it sometimes. We worry. I heard a preacher say yesterday, that you find the words fear not 200 times in your Bible. So why do we worry? Oh, we got a bill due. How are we going to pay the bill? I got a bad report on my health. How am I going to deal with this? I learn a lot from people who are close to God and close to going home, how they just take the news of near death with grace, and you say, how can they do that? They're just looking forward to dying or, or, or whatever. That doesn't make any sense to us until we get there. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. So he's with us when we go through that. He's in control of your life. No matter what's going on in your life, he's in control. We all have crosses to carry, but he's in control. A second, God, second, I want to say in closing, God hates a proud look and will humiliate the proud. And sometimes it's his own children. Sometimes he has to deal with us because of our pride. But finally, verse 1 of chapter 14, the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and yet choose Israel. God still loves his people and will restore them. Right now, you say, Jews that I know aren't saved. That's right. Jews have to be saved the same way we do, by trusting Jesus. Did you know that? You say, well, they're chosen as a nation. They're chosen as a nation. And the Bible said God will save a remnant of Jews, 144,000. 12,000 from each tribe, and many believe that just means the men, that there'll be women and children saved. So Israel's going to be saved. You're chosen individually. God knew before the world began when you'd be saved, and he chose you. But you still have to repent, don't you? Whosoever will may come, but whosoever will has to repent. And today, if you're here and you're not a believer, you need to repent of your sins and come to Jesus. He's the only way of salvation. Without him, you perish and go to hell. Hell is real. It's a place of literal torture, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine the pain so intense you're biting your teeth and you're crying and you're weeping for help? That's hell. It's not a very good future, but without Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's where you'll end up in hell. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for being in control. And for one day that you're going to send Jesus to take us out of this place. We look forward to that. Lord, come today. God, Father, send your son Jesus today. But if not, if we have to tear, if we have to wait here longer, we pray that 
will serve you and witness for you and realize it's all about heaven. And if there's somebody who's not saved, I pray they'll come forward right now and be saved. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.